Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Wednesday, June 2nd. John, what do you want to talk about today? Well, uh, you sent this along. New York City and 21 counties in New York State are suing McKinsey and Company for the role, their role, in the opioid epidemic. We'll get into that and what it means for the firm. I also want to talk about Xi Jinping's efforts to reposition China as, quote, trustworthy and lovable. There's a formula you had to of. <laughs> How about you? All right. The Financial Times has a piece today written by Robin Wigglesworth, who I think you're going to be speaking with, on what may be the end times for the traditional 60-40 portfolio, as well as the old endowment model of institutional investment, and how Canada may have a clue for the future of institutional money running. We'll talk about that. And then I want to get your thoughts on the return of Trump rallies. What could be more fun? <laughs> fun. <laughs> but before we get to any of this, let's start with two science and tech headlines. First, for the latest edition of Big Tech's Privacy Intrusions, Amazon has announced a new plan for increased interconnectivity, and customers in the U.S. have one week to opt out of it. It involves creating a shared wireless network, so your Amazon Echo can be used to set up a neighbor's Wi-Fi, or your Ring security camera can piggyback on the connection of another camera across the street. Some critics are worried this plan could put them in breach of their internet service provider's terms and conditions. Others say the change just wasn't made with enough notice. Should we be concerned about this, John, or should we just take it in the spirit of move fast and break things? Like privacy, personal <laughs> space. <laughs> I don't know. When when I first read it, I thought it doesn't apply to me because I have Alexa. But actually, yeah. I have Echo, the next uh, mm -hmm. generation. So I'm opting out today. And yeah. I'll read about how evil it is later. But uh, yeah. opt out is where I'm going. I think we should start on news items. I think we should start hashtag opt out Wednesday, where we just opt out to whatever privacy intrusion is being rolled out by big tech companies. You know, it's too hard to keep track of the fine print on the terms and conditions. Right. I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, is there a single person who has read the Apple terms and conditions on their yeah. new iPhone? I, don't, I think the answer to that question is no. That's right. Opt out Wednesday. <laughs> Next, researchers at Google and Harvard have released a detailed rendering of the human brain, or at least of one cubic millimeter of its cortex, the outer layer that makes us humans so good at talking, planning, and perceiving. Some of us, anyway. A cubic millimeter may sound small, but as Google puts it, it's the biggest sample analyzed at this level of detail and across the different types of nerve cells that work together to make the human brain quite possibly the most complex object in the universe. The rendering is massive, taking up 1.4 million gigabytes, and the researchers have made it possible to manipulate and rotate it in your internet browser. It's called NeuroGlancer. John, have you checked this thing out, NeuroGlancer? I read the story on the Google blog uh, this morning. And, you know, I haven't put it up on my laptop, but it is, you know, yet more evidence, if any more is needed, that uh, brain science is advancing by leaps and bounds. And uh, for those of us who are acutely interested in that subject, um, mm -hmm. it's very good news. Very good news indeed. All right. Let's get to the news items. First, 
Former President Donald Trump will be kicking off a summer of rallies this Saturday with a stop in North Carolina. The near-term goal will be to boost his allies into office, often at the expense of Republicans who crossed him. Let's not call this a comeback because Trump has clearly kept his hold on the GOP despite losing the presidency last year. And new data suggests he may be indispensable to the party's hopes in next year's midterms. In 2020, it turns out, Trump brought in a lot of first-time voters. John, I know you have thoughts on Trump's true motives here, but first, set the scene for us. What new political environment is he stepping into? Well, the first new political environment he's stepping into, obviously, is the possibility that he might be indicted. (laughs) The Republican Party is tied ever closer to Trump because the voters that are responsive to him, as opposed to the Republican Party, are in many cases, the difference between victory and defeat. So do you think there's anything strategic or deliberate about the site selection for these rallies? Is he targeting swing states where there is a critical mass of low propensity voters, or is it purely a political payback tour where he's going to be going to places like Arizona, Wyoming, Georgia, where he's got, let's say, scores to settle, where he can do so visibly? I don't think he'll choose places where he might lose. So I think he's likely to choose states and congressional districts, if it comes to that, where his influence is such that he can make some difference. But if he wasn't there, they'd probably win anyway. He can't afford to back a loser, right? On the larger question, this has less to do, I think, with individual congressional districts or individual states and more to do with live coverage of the events, particularly on Fox News, but also I think others, you know, I think CNN will cover them. I know they say they won't, but uh, the ratings will be such that I don't think they can afford not to. And that is where he will make the argument. One, obviously attack Biden on crime and immigration and sort of overreach, Mm -hmm. if you will, the $6 trillion budget. And two, about the politicization of his pending indictment. I don't think he'll say, I'm going to be indicted. I think he'll say, they're coming after me. Uh They'll do anything they can. They don't want you to have a voice. All of the typical Trump tricks. And, you know, I'm certain it'll work, frankly. So, but yeah, okay, but let's talk about that indictment. Let's say the indictment is, comes down the pike very near term. Does this throw a spanner in the works for Trump's they're out to get me rally? We have no idea whether it's coming soon or not. Okay. I mean, they're clearly, you know, working their way up the chain at the Trump organization and putting the squeeze on everybody. If you believe the former lawyer, Michael Cohen, as to the truth of the charges, he would lead you to believe that the Trump organization has committed multiple felonies. If you're Trump, you have to politicize this thing because if you just let it take its course, then you're diminished. So what does he do? What he does is what he does best, which is he hits the road and holds rallies. And he's going to whip up his base as much as he can to make the atmosphere as fraught as it can be. And I think he thinks, okay, if you're going to indict me, you know, I'm ready to go all the way to social disorder. Well, sounds like we're in for an offensive summer. It's going to be a good summer. (laughs) From a ratings point of view, which, as you know, is the only (laughs) thing that matters. To Trump. 
to Trump and to the networks. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on. John, institutional money managers face a tough environment. High bond prices, low yields, and historically high stock valuations have put paid to the traditional wisdom of the 60-40 portfolio, as well as the traditional endowment model pioneered by the Yale Endowment's own David Swenson. This may mean that it's, you know, it's time for a new approach. According to Robin Wigglesworth of the Financial Times, it may be worth a look at what the Canadians are doing. What are they doing, you may ask? Uh, Some Canadian pension plans actually buy companies and projects outright. Buy low and sell high, as they say. (laughs) According to Wigglesworth's article, an estimate by Partners Capital puts the average annual returns of the five largest Canadian pensions at close to 10% over the last decade. That's pretty good, right? Yeah. The thing that I thought was interesting about Robin's piece was he quoted somebody as saying, we've been working this low interest rate model for 40 years and we're at an end. And Mm -hmm. the question is, what do we do next? Robin says, looks like Canada is sort of the new model. I wonder if there are other models that will come to the fore. Yeah. I mean, just to sort of put the broad influence of David Swenson's pioneering endowment model into some perspective. Today, the average, let's say, foundation, which would be the classic sort of institutional investor, has more than 50% of its assets invested in what we would call real assets, aka checkoutinvestableuniverse.com, or alternative investments like real estate, infrastructure, energy, and commodities. Two decades ago, it was under 10%. So it's a much more crowded field. If you look at who invests in these asset classes, Scandinavian pension funds, that's how they funded social welfare, by investing in global real estate and infrastructure because they can tolerate a little short-term volatility. They don't need to be liquid right away. They can hold for long periods of time. That's what's traditionally generated the higher return. Is there another model? I mean, there's a lot to be said for clean energy startups, you know, companies that are going to be innovative and not just investing in the data center or the lab building or the bridge or the toll road, but investing in the R&D that takes place. But they're going to have to do something. I mean, if you look at traditional investment models, I mean, I think as Robin Wigglesworth says, I mean, there's a, we need a new story here. The old paradigm is not going to work. We don't know what the new paradigm is going to be. If I knew, I would not be sitting here. I'd be be (laughs) investing in it right now. (laughs) Right. right? Right? I mean, but according to data from AQR, which was quoted in that Financial Times article, the 60-40 portfolio, which has been sort of like the unquestioned gold standard for traditional investment for the past, I don't know, many decades, globally, a 60-40 portfolio is expected to return just 2% over the next five to 10 years. And if you were to take that universe just into the U.S., a U.S.-based 60-40 portfolio will average 1.49% compared to an average of 5% since 1900. Wow. I was thinking about this the other day that identical twin brothers had sold their family's company for $14 billion back, I don't know, 10 years ago. And they decided that what they wanted to do was important work, stuff that really benefited mankind. And they focused on healthcare. Mm-hmm. And they came across this Turkish couple and they poured money into their research that invented essentially the BioNTech-Pfizer vaccine, thinking we're not going to see any kind of return for 10 years, maybe 20 years. And of course now, you know, (laughs) BioNTech is worth like $50 billion Mm -hmm. or something. Yeah, exactly. 
Pharmaceuticals can be very difficult to fund with venture capital because of the lengthy and highly dicey approvals process and the high barriers to entry caused by the approvals pipeline. New forms of energy, also very similar. So you need to have a heftier investment partner. Well-capitalized companies can sometimes pull that kind of thing off if they have a venture capital arm, but otherwise you need an institutional investor like a pension fund, <laughs> like a very, very large investment management firm. So right. there's that. Yeah. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see. I'm interested to hear your conversation with Robin Wigglesworth because he's obviously done the deep dive on this. And I think if we're going to be looking at what Canadian pension funds are investing in, we could just go to investableuniverse.com sure mm-hmm. and look at the global market of things. That's very, very smooth, John. Very smooth. You think so? And, yeah, I think so. I thought it was and really always, smooth. That was really smooth. And readers should check out John's newsletter, News Items, from which this entire production derives, newsitems.substack.com. And you must, must go for the premium subscription where you get all of John's brilliant analysis on the major news stories moving the needle on any given day. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to News Items. China's President Xi Jinping told senior Communist Party leaders that he wants China to be seen as, quote, trustworthy, lovable, and respectable, unquote. A Bloomberg article from yesterday describes China's diplomatic strategy as having changed from the hide-and-bide approach of the pre-Xi era to big country diplomacy, and apparently it's evolving again. John, can you explain to our listeners what this shift means and why it's happening now? For the last year or so, China has been engaged in what has been described as wolf warrior diplomacy. Yeah. You know, the shorthand of that is our way or the highway. And it has caused nations throughout Asia to take a negative view, to put it mildly, of China's aggressiveness. And it also led to the collapse of the comprehensive investment agreement with the EU. That vote was taken, I think, last week and was a big blow. China was looking at that as a next step in its journey towards global domination. The EU voted to table it. You know, they had to switch tactics. And on top of that comes news that the U.S. position on what happened in Wuhan Mm -hmm. has shifted and that leading scientists from around the world concur that the lab leak theory may in fact be true. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you're Xi Jinping, you're thinking, this isn't really working, we need to switch course, and this has led to what we call lovable Xi. Lovable Xi. Yeah. I mean, honestly, how do you credibly rehabilitate public image in a country where dissent is squelched, where groupthink has become calcified (laughs) over many decades. I mean, I understand the impulse to want to sort of clean up a public image, but I don't know if they have a feasible way of going about that, given the uh, structural issues. And remember, this all leads up to what China regards as a showcase event, which is the the 2022 Mm -hmm. Olympics. Mm -hmm. And there's a movement afoot. It hasn't sort of taken hold yet, but there is kind of a slow motion movement developing that says we countries that are concerned about China's human rights violations, countries that are concerned about 
China's handling of Hong Kong, its potential takeover of Taiwan, its aggressive assertion of its maritime rights, on and on. Maybe we should have a separate Olympics in Norway and engage countries from around the world to go there. Mm-hmm. That would be a huge blow to China right. if the Wuhan lab leak turns out to be true and then they lose essentially the Olympics. Yeah. That would be probably the end of Xi. As you've said, it's a dicey moment for Xi. A, do you think this PR campaign or this public relations 911 that he's, <laughs> that he's calling <laughs> is going to be successful? And B, where do you put the odds of the Beijing Olympics? You know, I don't have access to what the sponsors are doing and et cetera, what various governments are thinking about doing with their teams. The thing that's interesting to me about this is there are a lot of people in Chinese politics who would like Xi to no longer be the president. And the question is, is this going to set up a situation where they can make a move? And Xi clearly is changing course. I mean, there's no question about that. To what degree does that indicate that he's concerned about his job security, if you will? That's the question. I mean, is this an existential political threat for Xi, or is it just rebranding or whatever the word is? It's a question wrapped inside a mystery within an enigma, to paraphrase the great Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra, (laughs) It is. All right, let's move on. New York City and 21 of New York State's counties are suing McKinsey and Company. They say the consulting firm helped cause the opioid epidemic, which they call the worst man-made epidemic in history. According to the lawsuit, the firm crafted misleading marketing campaigns for Purdue Farmer, the makers of OxyContin, and now they should pay for the damage they've caused. So is this a piggyback deal? I mean, hasn't McKinsey already, quote, settled, end quote, this case or not? They did settle earlier this year, I believe, with 49 states. So they settled for about $600 million for its role in advising Purdue, but did not admit wrongdoing as a part of that settlement. So I am not sure what has opened the door to this lawsuit by New York City, nor do I know what they may be uh, after in this, perhaps an admission of wrongdoing. And a vast sum of money, obviously, right? I think so. I think so. (laughs) The thing is that, you know, McKinsey has enjoyed this extraordinary reputation over decades. Mm -hmm. I remember a friend of mine at the New York Times telling me that the Times was always looking for a way to do a story that sort of countered the image of McKinsey as the most ethical, the most extraordinary consulting firm in the world, and that they came up empty time and time and time again. Yeah, There was nothing that they could find to report. But the opioid crisis, if you will, for McKinsey really caused incredible turmoil within the firm. It led to the lead partner's dismissal. You know, it really turned over, if you will, a lot of ill feeling within the company. Mm-hmm. But I don't honestly get why New York State, having settled, you know, having participated in the previous settlement, can come back for a second hit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It seems to me the New York City lawsuit isn't really designed to learn anything new since yeah. the previous one sort of laid it all bare but rather is about getting some kind of settlement and getting a couple of hundred million dollars, which I don't know if McKinsey's in in the mood to litigate anything. I wouldn't be surprised if they just said, okay, 
let's just get this behind us and eat the settlement fee and on we go. I don't think that the firm has been that damaged by the opioid scandal. You don't think so? I don't. I think from the point of view of other corporations, McKinsey was sort of optimizing Purdue's business model and business practices. And I don't think they think, oh my God, how could they possibly do that? I think they think, well, they did what they were assigned to do and it turned out badly, but it doesn't mean that the firm is bad. So I don't I don't ah. think it's I don't think it, I don't <laughs> I think mean, it's done that much damage. McKinsey you know, supposedly, putatively has some sectors that it will not work with, such as, for example, defense, intelligence, privatized prisons in non-democratic regimes. So they say. So there are some areas where they won't venture. Apparently, addictive drugs was not one of them. I mean, I think that if you take a look at the deck that they put together for Purdue Pharma, it seems to sort of acknowledge but minimize the role of OxyContin as an addictive drug. I mean, I think they point out that, you know, you know OxyContin is responsible for just 4% of opioid overdoses or use disorders. And the country like, well, what's the big deal? <laughs> like, I mean, it's shocking knowing what you know. I mean, 450,000 people died in 10 years because of this drug. Right. John, you sent along a piece that The Economist wrote in March after the initial settlement called McKinsey's Partners Suffer from Collective Self-Delusion. And that piece has really interesting background on it as well as some recommendations for what McKinsey might decide to do to rehabilitate its image, so to speak. Yeah, it was a very good column. I think they're worse for society than Goldman Sachs ever was. And the thing is, I say this as someone who has natural technocratic sympathies. No one would wish to have a pragmatically, technocratically run society more than me. But McKinsey is an example of what happens when that continues unfettered because there is no moral compass within the firm at all. And that's a problem, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's a problem. I mean, The Economist suggested putting together like a McKinsey Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think that's an interesting idea. I mean, look, if Facebook can have its own Supreme Court, McKinsey should have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I like that. I'm here to serve on the McKinsey Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I don't know what I have to do to be named to such a lofty post, but they might change their fee structure also. I think they're paid. Sometimes they get a flat fee. Sometimes they get a performance fee. I think possibly the, uh, the Purdue Pharma consulting work was done on a performance fee. So the better OxyContin did, the better Purdue Pharma did, the better... McKinsey did also. Yes, right. So. I mean, that was in The Economist piece where yeah. the compensation led them to overlook the addictive issues relating to opioids. And the other thing that The Economist piece I thought was very good at was that the firm could use a little humility. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, yeah. Which I think is absolutely <laughs> true. Yeah. But I don't, for some reason, I don't think it's that debilitating. I don't think... Coca-Cola would say, oh, my God, we can't use them because of what happened with Purdue. And the firm has such longstanding relationships with so many clients. I mean, there's a library at, at American Express with just one McKinsey study after another, after another, after another. I don't mm -hmm. think American Express is going to give up that relationship. So, Look, if I were the Boston Consulting Group, <laughs> I'd be making hay off this Indeed. scandal. You know, that to me, it's like, there's your opening right there. 
That's one of the very surprising things about it, actually, is that the other major consultancies Mm -hmm. haven't made a bigger issue out of it. I'm surprised that BCG hasn't really made a point of we're virtuous and they're not, because that is, in fact, the opening for McKinsey's competitors. Not the longstanding clients, but recent clients might be willing to entertain the idea of creating separation from McKinsey just for reputational reasons. I mean, I think it's time for a cultural moment where we reevaluate what optimization means. I mean, you know, in practice, it means the death of the middle class. I think there was actually a piece about McKinsey's role in eroding the American middle class or even the global middle class. You know, its role in optimizing for killer drug sales. I mean, what does it mean to optimize? I think it's time for a, a rethink on that. Maybe McKinsey can lead the way after their <laughs> mass mea culpa and a bigger check. <laughs> In New York, you know, anyway. They do publish those, you know, overviews on their website of, you know, this industry or that or Mm -hmm. this trend or that. And that would certainly be a uh, (laughs) cleansing act. And I'm certain (laughs) that it will never happen. (laughs) I know. Look, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm I'm laughing, but it's a laugh of, uh, I don't know, it's not a laugh of derision. I think it's more of a, I don't know, exasperation. What else can you say? What else can you say? Exactly. All right. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with my interview with Robin Wigglesworth of the Financial Times. We'll see you then. <laughs>